0: All right, if you got your Bibles, go ahead, open up to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. It's in your New Testament third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all right? So open up to the book of Luke, chapter 24. If you guys have been around this church for any length of time, you know one thing about me is that I love cinema, (laughs) all right? Those of you who know me well know that I love cinema. My wife and I have a joke that I like to tell regularly that when, after we got married and we moved into the same home, we had to organize all the different places in our home. And uh, I took the DVD collection, which was a thing at that time. People had DVDs and DVD collections, which we don't really have anymore. But I, I organized my DVDs by director's last name, all right? That's how much I like my movie collection. My wife organized the books by color, and neither of us could ever find anything on the other person's shelves. That's basically how that worked. Now, one of the things with movies, one of my favorite types of movies are those that have a twist ending. You know the one I'm talking about. Movies that... You're following the story all the way through, and you think you're seeing all the details that you need to see. You're watching it, and it's right before you. You've seen every scene. You know all the things that took place, but then something happens at the end. Something is revealed that once you know that thing, everything that you've watched through the whole movie suddenly has new light to it. And you start looking at it, you say, How did I miss it the whole time? It was right there in front of me the entire time. Had I known that, I would have watched the whole movie differently. And then, what's fun with a twist ending movie? I'm thinking of movies like Planet of the Apes or The Sixth Sense. You go back and you look at the whole movie and you realize, How did I miss it? It was right in front of my eyes the entire time. The resurrection, in a sense, is the great twist ending. On God's story that he's writing, though it's not quite the ending. However, it's the great twist that once you understand the resurrection, once you understand what the empty tomb is actually all about, you look at all of God's story in the Bible, and all of a sudden everything gets painted in light of the resurrection. And you begin to read all the stories of what God's doing, and you look out at all the history of the church, and suddenly it makes sense You didn't see it before. You were going through life and you had all the same details, all the same problems, all the same issues, all the same highs, all the same lows, but then suddenly you understand the resurrection and you look out over that same life, you look out over those same scriptures and you say, ah, I see what God's doing. You can't understand it all until you get the resurrection. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers from history, he he says this. He says, The resurrection is the cornerstone of the entire building of Christianity. It's the keystone of of the arch of our salvation. It would take a volume to set forth all the streams of living water which flow from this one sacred source. The resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But to know that he is risen and to have fellowship with him as such communion with the risen Savior by possessing a risen life, seeing him leave the tomb by leaving the tomb of worldliness ourselves. This is even more precious. Did you hear what he just said? He said it's one thing to have a a cognizant understanding that the tomb was empty. It is an entirely another thing to actually have a paradigm shift in your life where your life now is forever different in light of the resurrected tomb. It is one thing to say I assent through knowledge to what the Bible says is true. It is another thing to live a life that's colored by the resurrection. Those two things are fundamentally different. And you know what? Most of us can tell when you meet a person whose life is changed by the resurrection. You come in contact with them and you see them and you see what they're going through in life, and you suddenly probe a little bit and you realize their life is different. And the one difference about it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection declares that dead things don't stay dead, doesn't it? The resurrection declares that no matter what you're going through, Jesus has already been through it and worse, and he came through the other side to tell about it. And that means that you got a lot of hope no matter what you're going through. Isn't that what it says? The resurrection seals all the words of Jesus Christ that he promised, that he declared in his life and ministry. It's a stamp of approval over all of them that says Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He claimed to be the second person of the Trinity. He claimed to be the long-awaited Savior. He claimed to have the keys to death. And through the resurrection, that's validated. He rules and reigns right now from his throne. See, the resurrection changes everything. Once you understand it, You can't live life the way you once were. It must change. Today we're going to be exploring Luke chapter 24. And and Luke 24, it's the end of this gospel of Luke. And what's a gospel? There's four gospels in the New Testament. And these are stories about the life of Jesus as told through eyewitness accounts. Now Luke was not one of the eyewitnesses himself, but he was a scientist and a historian of his day. He was a historian that interviewed the eyewitnesses, and that's how the Gospel of Luke begins. He says, I've gone out and I've asked the eyewitnesses who knew the life of Jesus, I'm recording to you what actually happened. And Luke 24 is the final chapter, and in this chapter of this history of the life of Jesus, there's three different encounters that three different groups have with the resurrected Jesus. Three days prior, Jesus had been mercilessly killed through Roman crucifixion. Those of you who watched our Good Friday service online, you were told a little bit about what Roman crucifixion was. It was a physical symbol of no hope. A few years prior to Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, thousands were crucified in a mass crucifixion because of a slave uprising that had taken place, and they were put along the roads, and it was a sign to all who looked in, no hope, dead end, it goes no further. Jesus Christ was put into that place three days prior, and you can imagine the disciples and his followers who were in this place of grief three days later because there was a tradition in Judaism at the time that maybe on the first day after a death, a person could come to life, possibly on the second day, but by the third day, death had fully settled in. That was the belief in Judaism. And so on this third day, these disciples and the followers of Jesus were waking up to the reality that Jesus was dead, The crucifixion had taken its final toll. What I want to do is I want to look at each of these three groups, and I want to look at their experience of the resurrection, and I want to pull out three paradigm shifts for us today. And what I mean by paradigm shifts is this. Three ways of understanding the resurrection that must change you as you go through your life. So let's look at these three together. The first paradigm shift is this. The resurrection conquers our deepest grief. The resurrection conquers our deepest grief. Now, we learn this from a few women. Now, I want you to understand this. As, as we look to this passage, we're going to get into Luke 24, verse 1 here, and we're going to first meet these three women who were close to Jesus. And they're going to the tomb. They're going to the tomb with spices. And what, the, what are their expectations this morning? They're going on this Easter morning, not realizing Jesus is resurrected from the grave, but they're going in their despair and their grief. They're going to anoint the body with spices which would take away the smell of the decaying body. They're going to go there and they're expecting a Roman guard to be outside of the tomb where a large rock was placed and they're going to ask the Roman guard to move the stone away so they can go into the stench and lay spices around the body. That's how much they loved this man Jesus who had been taken from them through crucifixion. They're going to care for a friend. We read this in verses 1 to 9. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now that must have been a startling sight. The guards had been put there to make sure that no one got in by sentence of death. Suddenly the the stone is rolled away. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's been risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now what's the point I'm trying to make here? The resurrection conquers our deepest grief. Now before I fully dive into these the mindset of these women, I want to make it a very important point to us. This is a very bizarre moment in the history that Luke chooses to tell of the life of Jesus. Why? Well, Luke's a good historian, and he's a historian in the first century. And in the first century, you didn't write history, and if you, if you wanted to write history and have credibility, you did not have women giving the voice of testimony of what took place. In those days, a woman's voice was not heard in a court of law, either by the Romans or by the Jews. It didn't have the credibility or the weight that a man's voice would have had. And for a historian to begin the story of the resurrection, which would have been very difficult for people to believe, just as difficult as it is for us to believe, for a historian like Luke to begin the narrative of the resurrection of Jesus by proclaiming it was three women who first visited the tomb and were the first ones to give an account to the rest of the disciples, that would have been utterly off-limits for a historian. That's not how you would tell the story, especially if you were trying to sell the story. If you wanted to try to concoct a story, you certainly wouldn't do this. The only reason you would do this is if it was the way it actually happened. This defies everything that people would have said should be the way history should be written. You don't say women were the ones to give the testimony in those days. Yet here it is. One of the things I love about the Bible is it's so surprising. It gives you all the details in ways that you wouldn't expect it. Some of us are unfamiliar with the Bible. And the way we think about the Bible is the Bible is a collection of great men and women who did great things and set the example for all of us to follow. And I'll tell you what, you only got to open up to one or two pages of the Bible outside the life of Jesus to realize it's the exact opposite. The Bible is a collection of stories of men and women who were deeply flawed individuals much like ourselves who were following after a God who had made deep covenantal promises with them and this God who continued to chase after them even in their worst sinful failures. Isn't that good news? See, the Bible is so real. It's one of the things that's interesting about it. it. It somehow resonates with my own life. They were flawed people and yet in the midst of it there's this perfect God who's writing this incredible story. See, many people mistake Christianity as something along the lines of Hinduism. And in Hinduism, what you have is you have these these mythological stories of these gods, much like Greek mythology, these gods that are distinct, and and they're known. In some ways, they're known to be distinct. They're known to be mythological. And what's important is not necessarily the factuality of the story, but what's important in Greek mythology or what's important in Hindu mythology is the principle and the story and the lesson you learn from the story of these gods. But into The history of religion steps Christianity, and what makes Christianity unique is that the story rests not on mythology, but on a factual event that took place in history as testimonied by three women who were there on this first day, who should not be the first to give a testimony of it, and a factual story of an empty tomb, a man who rose from the grave. This changes everything. The story of the resurrection is not just a spiritual great story that we draw spiritual truths from, but it's a declaration of what happened in time and space through one man, Jesus Christ. And if it's true, it has to change everything. If it's actually true, it must change everything. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. See, what, Jesus, what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, he's saying this, if what we're saying about the resurrection is that it's just spiritual and it's just this mythology and it wasn't an actual event that took place in time and space, then your faith in Jesus is totally wasted. Because what that means is everything Jesus said was a lie. He didn't have the depth and the substance to back it up. But if he really rose from the grave, if he defeated death, then we must understand everything he said was true. He is who he claimed to be. I hear a lot of people try to tell me that they believe Jesus Christ was a good man, a holy man. I do a lot of evangelism in the streets of Chicago, and oftentimes when I ask people who they think Jesus is, what I'll hear is something like this. Jesus was a good man, perhaps a holy man, perhaps a man who did miracles, but not more than that. And what I tell them is the Bible does not give you that opportunity to believe that about Jesus. Jesus is either exactly who he claimed to be, he's God in the flesh, or he is a lunatic, but he cannot be just a good man perhaps a liar, but there's no room for him to be a good man. Now let's go back. Let's go back. We meet these women. They're at the tomb. This testimony is unique. It's a testimony of women. They're they're saying, they go back to the disciples, they proclaim, something is different. The tomb is empty and these angels appear to us and they said that he is now alive. Now get into the mindset of these women for a second. They went there this morning and they had every reason to be full of grief. Their world was darkened. They, they had seen the crucifixion. They're, they're, the one who they hoped for to be alive was dead. The one who they hoped would be a savior, they were going to mourn his death. I got a question for you. Do you think their life was ever the same after this morning? I mean, just think about their life after this. You ready for this? These, what did they go through in the next 30, 40 years of their life? Every type of persecution and suffering you could ever imagine. They, they would watch their best friends killed and crucified. Some of them crucified upside down. They were thrown off buildings. They were killed for fun. They had their properties stolen from them. They had their money taken from them. They were disrespected. In, in the Roman days, the Romans would call them atheists because they didn't believe in the Romans' God. That was a, a term of hatred. They were hated where they went i got a question. These women, after this Easter Sunday, what do you think their, their posture was as they went through that for the rest of their life? You think they, you think they went through it all and, and they just had their head down in grief and they just said, we're hopeless. I know there's, there's no light at the end of this tunnel. We can't understand what's going on. Do you think that's how they went through it all? i got news for you. It's not. As a church, we're reading the book of Acts, and you don't see that anywhere in them. Why? Because they met the resurrected Jesus who changed their grief to hope. And there's some news for us in that. See, if you're a Christian, you are like these women. You've, you've understood in reality, in the fullness, in the totality of what it means that the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the grave. Now that sheds color on everything you will go through. And can I tell you something? I'm a pastor. I know a lot of what you're going through. I'm in it with you. Life is full of challenges and trials that will stretch you to your breaking point and past it. We're coming out of a season of COVID, and we're not through it yet. We're going through a pandemic that has taken the life of thousands and tens of thousands of people, has taken jobs, has taken money. Some of you are going through challenges that I don't know how to fix them for you. It's one of my greatest burdens as a pastor. I come alongside you, and I I have nothing to offer except for prayer. I don't know how to fix it. How do you go through that in light of this? It must be different. You can't go through it like your neighbors. I know that. See, if the tomb's empty, that means Jesus has been through all of it and much worse, and he's risen from the grave, and he's sealed your own resurrection, and it means he has a purpose for you in your life. And what that means is that when you have grief, when you go through a season when you don't understand it, it's painted differently because of the resurrection. And people must see that about you. You think when the Romans saw these Christians in the early days going through suffering and they, they saw them going through it joyfully, being strengthened, you think they looked at them and they said, I don't understand. You sing hymns while we crucify you. Tell me more. Today, I think one of the greatest challenges we have in the Western world is that Christians seem to suffer the same way everyone else does. And when we suffer the same as everyone else, we live as if the tomb was still full with a dead man's corpse and we were going to put spices on his body. But the tomb was empty. He resurrected from the grave. He sealed your fate. He's given you a new story. Despite the circumstances you might be in right now, the resurrection declares that that's not the end of the story. And Christian, you must live like it. You must run to Christ in the middle of it. These women ran back to the, testimony, to, to the disciples and they couldn't help but tell somebody, it's not what you think. The resurrection changes that paradigm in you. It turns your deepest grief into, into hope. Number two, second paradigm shift. The resurrection satisfies our deepest longings. Now, the second group we meet is this fascinating story, and I wish we could do a whole sermon on it today. It's these fellow disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're these strangers. We don't know their names. In a sense, it's almost as if you can write yourself into the story. In fact, a number of commentators, they actually say the reason the names of these disciples aren't given is because as a reader, you want to place yourself in the story and make it yourself. It's this story that relates to everybody, these disciples, they're coming from Jerusalem, going to Emmaus, which is a town just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It would have taken about a half day's walk to get there. And their minds are full, and they're discussing all the things that had taken place among, over the last few days. They're talking about Jesus and, and his death, and they're talking about the pain they've been going through, and they're talking about the disciples kind of storing themselves up in this, in this room and being afraid to do anything. And then they're talking about these The testimony of these women who claimed they saw some angels who said that Jesus was alive. And all of a sudden, a man appears on the road next to them. It turns out it's Jesus. But their eyes were kept from seeing him. Luke chapter 24, verse 16, it says this, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus is is on the road with them. and, And all of a sudden, he pulls up and he begins to explain to them everything they're talking about. They're having a conversation about the crucifixion, and Jesus begins to have a Bible study with them. (laughs) Can you imagine that Bible study? I mean, that's a Bible study I wish I could have been a part of, just to sit underneath Jesus' teaching. And here's what it says. It says that he began to open up and reveal all the scriptures to them and show them how these events had to happen. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. We read this. I mean imagine what Jesus had done on those few hours as he took a he took the scrolls and he began to go through every story and he said look I know this is the twist ending that you didn't see coming but let me explain it to you let me take you back into the story so you can see it all it was written right under your nose the entire time I bet you he went back to Genesis chapter 3 right in those first few chapters where the promise was made that one would come who would crush the serpent's head remember that story One would come who would crush and defeat Satan finally, and Satan's rule would have no hold over his followers anymore. I bet you he went to the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12 of that first Passover. You remember the story in the Passover where God's people were in trouble, and darkness of night had come, and they didn't know how they were going to get through it? And God instructed them to kill a lamb and to place the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And if they would hide themselves under the blood of the Lamb, then the wrath of God would pass over them, and they would not be impacted. And I wonder if he opened that passage and he said, look, I'm the Passover Lamb. If you hide yourself underneath my blood, the wrath of God passes over you, and it will not touch you. See, it was under your noses the whole time. I bet you we opened up to Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant that great chapter that describes Jesus on the cross which reads this way surely this is Isaiah 53 written hundreds of years before Christ's death surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed These men are so intrigued by what Jesus is saying as they're suddenly seeing the the Bible and all the stories in a different light. And we read this in verses 30 to 32. When he was at table with them, sorry, back up just a little bit, they invited him over to dinner. That's how much they were intrigued by this. They invite Jesus over to dinner. And verse 30 when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. It's reminiscent of the upper room. When Jesus established the Lord's Supper and broke bread, suddenly they're looking at Jesus, whom they didn't recognize, breaking the bread again, and it's like their eyes are opened. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he, Jesus, vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I love that language. Here's these two strangers, these disciples who we don't know who they are. They were with Jesus all day, understanding this twist ending, explaining the fullness of the Bible to them. And all the while, what we're told about their condition in their heart is that their hearts were burning. And it wasn't until they met and understood that it was Jesus in their presence that fully that burning sensation in their heart was met by the thing that could satisfy it. There was this burning, like there's more. Jesus was explaining it. There's more. there's more. there's more. And then they finally realize Jesus is in their presence, and it's like their hearts burst to flame, and they're fully satisfied as they realize what their hearts had most been longing for was the man they were walking with. I love that language. Our hearts burned inside of us. I believe inside of everyone's heart here today, there's a burning that takes place. Everyone's heart burns for something. And I think we see that in our society. We see society all around us with hearts burning for something more. This is why we fight for justice. This is why when we see something wrong, most people will step in and try to do something about it. Our hearts burn for something more beyond the reality of what we see in front of our eyes. We see something wrong and we say there's something transcendent that says that this is not right the way it is. And so we step into it, and you only have to open your eyes to the world around us to know that it's not just Christians whose hearts burn for something more, but everyone who's been made in the image of God has hearts that's burning for something. It's written on our society. On every news story you read, there's burning hearts crying out for more. And the great error of humanity is that though they sense some need for the transcendent inside of them, they settle for the earthly to satisfy the burning inside their hearts. And they say, if we could just pass some law, then, then that burning in my heart will be met. If I can just get that job, then the burning in my heart will be fully satisfied. If I can just meet that one, if I can get married, then, then... That burning will be satisfied. If we can just see society change the way it's organized and start speaking this way to each other, then that satisfaction in my heart will be met and my soul won't burn anymore. But how many times do we know the story? You get what you ask for. It comes, the law is finally passed. It comes, you finally meet that person. It comes, you get the job you longed for. You get the raise you were looking for. And then what happens? Are you satisfied? No, the burning's still there. Why? Because everybody has been made with a burning in their heart for the transcendent and no thing on this earth can satisfy that. It is only Jesus that satisfies the burning in the human heart. Nothing else will do. I love C.S. Lewis's words on this. So brilliant. He says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He's absolutely right. I want to appeal to you right now. We are living in a day where we are watching hearts burning for something more. And, Christian, I need you to hear me with clarity this Easter Sunday. The more that people long for is the person of Jesus Christ and the reality of the empty tomb. That is it. Because once you know that, everything else gets colored in light of it, everything changes. Everything finds its place underneath that shadow of that resurrection because Jesus' declaration of the empty tomb says that this life is not the only thing we live for but that the resurrection declares that there is somewhere we're headed and it's your story and it's my story. Our hearts burn for more. Have you experienced that paradigm shift in your life? Paradigm shift number three. Finally, the resurrection seals our redemption. The resurrection seals our redemption. The final people, and interestingly enough, to meet Jesus are the disciples. He finally appears to them. After meeting with the women, after meeting to these strangers on the road to Emmaus, and we read this in verses 36 to 43. As they were talking about these things, the disciples, they're in the upper room, discussing all the things that have happened. As they're talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Just pause there. You know, it's the details of the Bible that have the way of changing everything about you. Jesus appears to the disciples, and the first thing he says to them is peace. Don't miss that this Easter. The life of a follower, and this isn't even the point I'm making, but you've got to hear this. The life of a follower of Christ is one of waking up every day and looking at the challenges that are before you and the sorrow that could paint your life And then declaring, Jesus, I live for you, and it's your glory I'm after today. And hearing the precious words of Christ speak into your life, peace to you. Do you know that peace this morning? Because I'm pretty sure that's the first things he said to the disciples after the resurrection. And some of us have so much pain and so much stress and so much anxiety welling up inside of us, wondering what tomorrow is going to happen. And we're like the disciples up in the room, and we just need to recognize that when Jesus comes to us, the first thing he says to us is this, Peace to you. I want you to have that this morning. He goes on, But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And listen to what he does. See my hands and my feet? He rolls up his sleeves. He takes off his sandals. He says, look, look at my hands and my feet. What's he doing in that moment? He's showing them the scars of the crucifixion. He says, look at this. See it? Don't miss it. This is a physical body I got right here. This is me. This is not a spirit. I've risen from the grave. I was crucified. I got the scars to show it. Now look at it. He says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy. This is a fascinating sentence. It doesn't actually make sense in the English. But I think it perfectly captures what was going on in their mind. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Another one of those fascinating little details that most historians would not have included except for the fact that it's what's happened. That's the story. Why include the detail of eating a broiled fish? Because it's what they did. They gave him some fish and he ate it. And he's telling the story of what took place. Why did he roll up his sleeves? Why did he say peace to you? It all fits together. See, the great story of the resurrection is that your sins are fully forgiven in Jesus Christ, and the only way that could possibly take place is if one man went under the wrath of God on your behalf. That's the story of the crucifixion. So many of us have heard the stories of Jesus, and we still don't know what it actually means. We still don't understand what the crucifixion's all about. Many of us think the crucifixion was a martyr's death for a religious belief. Jesus going to the cross for some statements He made and some things He held to be true, but that is not the resurrection. That's not the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the declaration that justice and love find their their interlocking in one man on the cross. The story of the Bible is that we are sinful beyond our wildest belief. And that there is a just judge that we will stand before on our judgment day when we depart from this life. And that just judge looks out over the sin, and he sees the thousand upon thousands of ways that the smallest of our sin brought darkness into this world, and pain into our lives and others' lives. And he sees the consequences of it. And the Bible says the wages of sin is what, church? Death. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. And we've got one of two choices in this life. On our judgment day, when we stand before a holy God, we can stand before a holy God and give a presentation of our sin before him, and the consequences of that is death and separation from God. Or we can stand before a holy God and allow Jesus to carry our debt on our behalf. That's exactly what the crucifixion is. As the wrath of God, rather than being poured out on you and me, is poured out on Jesus. And those who put their faith in Jesus say, Jesus, will you carry my debt on my Behalf for me. So when you stand before that just judge, that just judge only has to look at the hands and the feet of Jesus. He pulls up his sleeves. He says, Look, it's been paid in full. It's been paid in full. There's nothing left. There's nothing else to pay. It's paid in full. Here's what that means there is no darkness in your life, there's no sin in your life. There's no distance you could walk from God that Jesus' death on the cross cannot forgive you in full and declare you righteous before a holy God. Amen? There's no part of your story that is off limits from the love of God being poured into your life. The Bible declares it as grace upon grace, a free gift of God. This morning as you come in here, this Easter 2021, I need you to hear this, and I believe there are any number of people in this room and listening online right now who still don't understand what the resurrection's all about. The resurrection declares that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't carry your debt anymore. It doesn't mean you're a perfect person. It doesn't mean you're a perfect person and that you got your act together and that now you're this perfectly religious person. Far from it. It means you're a sinful person that's had your life fully changed by Jesus, but your debt is paid in full. You've repented of your sin and you've trusted in Christ. Church, I want to invite you into that this morning. Some of you right now, I believe your hearts are burning inside of you. I believe it. I believe that there's any number of people in here right now and listening that have yet to actually believe in Jesus, that have been going through the motions and the rote mechanics of christianity their entire life coming to church sunday after sunday but have never made him lord but if he truly defeated death you have to make him lord there's no other option for your life what can you do look at the love of jesus on the cross and say i think i'll go my own way that's the other option i beg of you this morning if you have not declared jesus your lord do it this morning What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you a chance to wrestle with God. And then we're going to have three folks come up and share their story of what Jesus has done. And we're going to celebrate baptism together. So, will you bow your heads with me? And I want to give you a space for those of you that need to either recommit your life to Christ or those of you that need to receive Jesus for the first time. You can pray along with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we look at the resurrection and we confess that so often, We come at this thing with the wrong lens. And we think of it as a great event in history of a holy man and we forget the paradigm shifts that must take place in our life if it's true. We can't live the same anymore. If death is defeated, everything's different. Jesus, I pray for those right now that are listening that are ready to receive Jesus, who are ready to declare that they do not want to live their own life or carry their own debt anymore, that the grief is too hard to carry on their own, I pray that by God's grace you would reach them right now and the prayers would be being prayed in this room that declare, Jesus, I've made you Lord of my life. I'm done with my life of not following you, of trying to go my own way. I want to live for Jesus. I I want to be painted in light of the resurrection. I want that hope inside of me. I want the knowledge that he knows me, that he won't let me go. Jesus, I pray for new life in this room. In the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. And for those that have put their faith in Jesus in the past, I pray, God, for a reminder of the truth of what they proclaim, that Jesus is for them, and therefore nothing can be against them. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.